Welcome to Monday Morning Critic Podcast. Here is Derek Thomas. Fraser is a musician and actor with a wonderful filmography highlighted by season four of American Horror Story Freak Show. I am so thrilled to have him on the show today. Matt, thanks for being here today. Thank you. It's a real pleasure uh, to so, be on this uh, great uh, podcast. Oh, thank you. And I have to say, you know, there's so much of your life that I, to say interesting might be an understatement here. Um, so I just put a lot of the stuff I, I researched on you together and, and some of the stuff I need help connecting here because it really is an interesting life for a lot of great reasons. Um, uh-huh. So you started acting at 35, but I thought I read, Matt, where you started at 15, but you kind of got sidetracked. Is that accurate? Did I read that correctly? Well, what happened was, um, I'm sorry, I will cancel my mail right now. Um, (laughs) What happened was I went for this school audition and um, I'm the son of two actors. So I grew up in the wings doing line runs with my mum and dad, giving them notes, you know, like a kid would. Um, And so I didn't even consider there would be a problem. And then when I announced my intention to audition for the school play, the frozen smile from my English teacher, because in our school, the English teacher always directed the play, um, told me that something was up. Um, And then when I went to audition, because I bullied my, I forced my, I demanded the right to audition. um, I could see everyone was just embarrassed. Everyone was just damn embarrassed. And I, I, even at that early age, I was like, this is not good. Embarrassment is not what you want to agenda on the, on the stage. And so I was put off. But then, um, so that's why I almost became an actor, but didn't become an actor in my late teens. Because ordinarily, uh, like a lot of kids, I would have just fallen into doing what my parents had done. You know, especially with acting. You often get kids who are actors whose parents were actors, you know. Gotcha. Well said. And, you know, just so we could paint a backstory, I have to say that, you know, I feel like the last few guests, the point of our conversations have been, who they are or whatever they're going through is part of the story. It is not the story of their life. Yeah. For those listening and, and, and know you or maybe don't know you, I, I like to start from scratch to give people. Um, of course. Yeah, and, and this is just a very basic. So explain to people what, um, and I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly, what thalidomide is, Matt, and what you kind of went through. it. And I'm not going to talk about this a lot because it's really a part of your life. It is mm. not who you are and I hope I'm saying that correctly you are and you've got it right it's not who I am but it has definitely tempered my experience and is an integral part of what I am you know so um in the late in the in the 60s uh, in Europe there was a birth control drug uh that was marketed by Kemi Grinnell the German uh, drug company um and they marketed it as uh, the world's first non-barbiturate sedative which means it was the world's first drug that you could not OD on and die if you mistakenly took too many. Um, then they also marketed it and it became more of the, the forward part of the marketing for morning sickness. But they hadn't done their research. They hadn't done the proper uh, checks. And in those days, you know, you didn't get proper tests in the way that you do now on drugs. And it caused deformities in pretty much all the fetuses. Uh, you know, one pill, one week, would result in uh, a deformity. We've put all the stats and collated the um, evidence of who took what, when, and what was the result in terms of the limb deformity of the child. And it seems pretty much that it's between week 29 and week 34 of the pregnancy and how many pills you took um, dictated whether the kid would have short truncated arms or legs or both, or then really getting into it with the mixed up inner organs. Two thirds of us didn't, make it and a third of us survived Mm. i've got 
what we in my commu- my thalidomida community call a, a pretty mild one. So I've got short arms. They my, my, so I don't have the bulky shoulders. My arms start at the end of my clavicle, which is the pointy bit in the middle of your shoulder. That's the end of your collarbone. And then uh, they go down about 10, 11 inches. Um, and then they in uh, my hands inwardly turn like a foot off a leg, uh, where your, roughly your elbow would be. And I have four fingers and no thumbs. So although short arms is what people see, and is very much my sort of, if in a wide shot, if you were to look at me, like, oh, that dude's got short arms. The really profound thing is not having thumbs. Because without the opposable digit, I can't pick up, a, a, I mean, I can pick up a, like a paper cup or something, but not a pint or something of any weight with one hand. I need to use both hands like a, a squirrel would, mm, if, mm. if you will. The way the squirrel eats a nut is the way I attack a bit of watermelon. Gotcha. Um, um, that's about it. Um, it was a bummer. I've never known anything else, so I don't have envy or grief around a body that I used to have that I've lost. Um, but because I'm so rare and so freakishly different, that's given me an experience, a society experience of always being slightly out other and slightly outsider. Having said that, I've never been ostracized. I've always had a million friends and been part of huge gangs of people in one respect or another. Um, but I would say this. Two years after that fateful audition, punk rock happened. And man, that was my liberation because I was a punk immediately. And mm. I, went from being, I went from being the freak to the punk. And that was an upgrade, a social upgrade that you cannot imagine. And uh, the punk community kind of allowed my disability slightly more than mainstream society did. No one was going to disallow me into any place. But what I mean is... So, you know, their level of embarrassment was a lot less because they were, you know, they hated everything about society. <laughs> you know? And so, uh, so I don't know, I, I found redemption in being a teenage punk rocker is what I'm saying. Yeah, and well said, by the way. Thank you for sharing that. And I have to say, and I don't want to sound sappy, but it's, first of all, it's a miracle that you're here. Um, I mean, it's amazing that you're here. And the real beautiful part, and I think I got this during an interview, was your mother's reaction when, when the people in the hospital knew what yeah. they, they, you know what had happened your yeah. mother's reaction was almost and i don't want to sound sappy again but almost beautiful in a way well um you know we have to remember that this is a time when anything a doctor said was the bible doctors had never got anything wrong up until that point so they just believed what doctors said so my mom's given birth i've not been given to her she's left alone in the room after an hour she's like okay something's gone wrong after two hours she's like something is seriously wrong after three hours, she was like, I have to prepare myself for the worst possible news coming from the doctor. And then they brought me in after four hours, tightly swathed, mm. <laughs> so you couldn't tell, mm. put me in my mother's lap and got the hell out of Dodge with, with nothing. And so my mom unwrapped my stuff. But the first thing she saw was my face looking at her. And she said it was like looking at the face of an old friend. And the mother bond, the mother-child bond was immediate and there. And then she unwrapped and went, oh, oh, wow, okay, <laughs> this is going to be a challenge. Right. But, but the love and the old friend and the connection was there and everything else came after that. So, so how about from, from a professional point, because you mentioned yeah. they're both actors, obviously you're an entertainer, actor, musician, mm. we're going to get to that. But, you know, I, I have to imagine they were fully supportive of you every step of the way. Yeah, well, unfortunately, my father um, died uh, of cancer when I was 21. Oh, I'm sorry um, to hear that. That's, that's fine. It was a long time ago now, and it was a real drag at the time. He had come out as gay when I was nine, and so I had lived from nine to uh, until my mother remarried at 14, uh, when I was 14, rather. Um, it's sort of a, a single mum, you know, single parent, mum and son kind of relationship. And we went a few places over the world while my mum trying to just settle after the divorce. We came back to Britain. Um, um, so, but, and then, and then my father, uh, and Jerry, uh, got together. And so I was one of those kids that had two Christmases <laughs> and, and two homes. Yeah. Everybody loved me. Everybody supported me. Nobody told me I couldn't do anything. Nobody even raised a, an eyebrow when I declared I wanted to go to a fancy dress party as a boxer. Dude, 
I, I must have looked ridiculous. You know, I mean, actually ridiculous. <laughs> Box stuck on my shoulders to all intents and purposes. No one said a word. You know, I often think this is the weird thing. Sometimes I wish people had sent something, but then I think, but if they had, maybe that would have inhibited this kind of I can do anything attitude that I have. Right. Because no one's ever told me I couldn't do anything. And so I've assumed. It's just a case of me physically negotiating the situation. Not, oh, people like you can't do stuff like that. No one ever said that to me. Um, but I'm going to just jump forward. And the first time it happened to me was when I auditioned for the, uh, the Sylvester Stallone production of Judge Dredd in, I think, the year 2000. I was auditioning for an extra. Anybody who's familiar with the comics, 2000 AD, will know that it was a world of perps, uh, judges and mutants um and so i thought well i could be a, a mutant extra i had long dreadlocks at the time sorry everybody but it was the 90s give me a break uh, we, <laughs> we, didn't, we didn't know any better um and i looked pretty fucking good if i may say so myself excuse my French. <laughs> and i went along and they took photos and then i was gently taken to one side where they explained to me that whilst i did look the part i couldn't be in the film playing a mutant because i was a real mutant and that messed with my head so bad. And I that is ridiculous. But it's I know, <laughs> I know. It would never happen now, of course. It right. Time ago. Um, and, and the film world was not ready for the real thing. They just weren't. Um, you know, they have problems with it now. But we're talking like weird sci-fi extras in the background. And they still weren't up for it. Uh, and it messed with my head. And it's when I became really politicized about my disability and realized it's a social construct um, and uh, all the social impact of that. And it set me a bit crazy for a while. I, 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 I um, became a, you know, as if the dreadlocks weren't bad enough, I became a rapper um, <laughs> and produced my album Survival of the Shittest, which was <laughs> 10 tracks of fury right. about disability set to a beat. Um, I, wasn't try I wasn't talking about the hood that I didn't live in or biatches that I didn't know or money that I was never going to earn. I wasn't that kind of wannabe. I was just, and another thing, Tony Blair's a wanker and he won't do this. And fucking <laughs> is, ah! You know, I was, it was unlistenable, I think. Anyway, um, so yeah, so most of my life, and I thank my mother to this day because I've got her to thank for my confidence and my ability just to walk into any situation and expect to be treated like an equal. Well, that's beautifully said. And I, I have two questions because I want to touch on your musical career a little bit here. Uh, just before we get into you, your your career in itself, uh, you have to pick one, Matt. The Clash or the Sex Pistols? Oh, the Sex Pistols. Okay, yeah, and I think most people would. Um, the three best drummers of all time, Neil Peart, John Bonham, Keith Moon. Are you on board with that? Well, I'm going to – not Keith Moon. Um Neil Peart, John Bonham, in that order, yes. But I'm going to pull a weird one. I'm going to say Ronnie Tutt for number three. And, and uh, uh, you'll only really listen to his drumming if you listen to some Elvis from the Las Vegas years. <clears throat> um, that's all I can say, really. He was a top drummer. He didn't do... He did very top kit. He never went beyond the 16th on anything. But he was fan-bloody-tastic. And... Um, and then I just want to add Budgie from Susie and the Banshees as a, as a close fourth. Great. Yeah, great. great. I, love, I love Moon, but you've got to choose between Bonham and Moon, haven't you, really? I yes. Think. Yeah, yeah. Great, great, great point. Like my, one of my best friends, Phil, who was a drummer for the Buzzcocks for many years, he was, he's a massive Keith Moon. And me and him have had many nights arguing the points. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I got gotcha, you. I got gotcha. you. And what are your thoughts? Because you are a drummer and, and you're, you're really good at your craft. Um, how, um, do you find that... Because I know, and we're going to get to this too, people that are disabled on Twitter, they look up to you, and, and I want to really get into the core of that because I love the feet. I mean, you're kind of the, you're not afraid to speak your mind, and I love it. What are your thoughts on Rick Allen from Def Leppard? You know, because he's another successful drummer who is disabled. Um, yeah. I, I just get your thoughts on him. And because I feel like I've, people don't talk enough. I mean, we talk how great Def Leppard is, but I feel like he's never given credit for how far he's come with what he's had to endure. Yeah, well, two things. I mean, listeners might not know, but Def Leppard at the time were probably the highest selling rock band in the world. Um, and then Rick Allen had a car crash that, and lost an arm. Any other band would have gone, oh, we'll get another drummer. Not them. 
they took a year off and said to Rick Allen, dude, as long as it takes, learn how to play the drums with one arm, we're there for you. And we're not going back on tour until you're ready. Um, which just, you know, my God, <laughs> that really gets to me, that does. Yeah. Anyway, so that's really awesome for a start. And then the other thing is that his adaptive drumming, um, you know, they weren't a bit of a bit of a little bat. They were quite a commercial rock band. And so it wasn't too much of a stretch for him to relearn. And I think it's fantastic the way he, he now uses uh, his left foot for his snare um, instead of the left hand that's now uh, missing um, and drums really nicely. And I think it's a really, really good job. And uh, it's a shame. he's. I, I, where was the Rick Allen documentary? I would have loved to have seen that. Or a disabled drummer. Maybe that's what I could do. Maybe I could do a documentary one day about I'm a disabled drummer and now I'm going to visit all my famous favorite disabled drummers. I don't know who'd fund that. Yeah, amen to that because talk about long overdue, you know, and for those that have seen you, they know this. For those that haven't, you're as handsome as hell. I mean, when I look in the mirror, I have to tell you, Matt, I cringe. Uh, <laughs> you have to be confident, right? Your your burlesque shows, your theater work, your acting. Where did that well, confidence come from? Is that something that develops over time or is have you always been that way? I guess I have. I'm very confrontational. My mother – bless her heart, who I love dearly, cannot abide any confrontation. If you criticize anyone, she'll, I tested it once. If you criticize anyone, <laughs> she'll come to their defense. So I once, I was like, I wonder if this will work. I went on about Hitler for five minutes thinking at some point, because it's just in her. And sure enough, she, the charming dinner guest came out. I was like, no, no. Anyway. <laughs> Um, by the way, listeners, my mother is so not a Nazi that could have come out really wrong. No, we get your point. I get your point. Okay. Yeah, 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 anyway. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think as a reaction to that, I'm like, if there's a fight, I'll go for it. That's why I don't go to any demonstrations at the moment because I go towards the trouble and, um, that's not good when you're my age and, um, and, and so forth, so on and so forth. Um, but anyway, so I've always gone into a situation and expected to be able to be allowed to do it. Um, and very few times have people put barriers in my way in that, in that way. Um, I've always been very confident and yeah, I, I guess I've always chosen jobs where it doesn't really matter so much why I decided to become an actor, like probably the only job harder than being a musician if you're disabled and want to get like, I don't know, well-known or something, but you know, I'm very grateful for the career that I've had and any disabled people that look to me and are inspired to uh, give it a go themselves is, is my ultimate delight. I long for the day when some upstart tries to run me over on their way to success hmm. in that kind of all about Eve, you're an old lion, I'm going to kill you and get better than you kind <laughs> of way. Um, because that would mean there's a healthy movement going, you know? Right. Um, but sadly, we're still a bit few and far between, it has to be said. Um, and, you know, you could have bowled me. So I was, I, I, I hadn't had any acting for a while. And Grey Eye Theatre Company, that's G-R-A-E-A-E, -E, Theatre Company, the leading disabled theatre company in Europe, were doing a tour of their Ian Jury musical. Um, uh, sorry, the name has just escaped me. I'll come back to me. And they asked me if I would debt for the drumming because I'd done the original uh, production but not the tour. They'd lost their drummer and they were going to do a couple of gigs in Berlin in Germany. And could I go with them? And I thought that would be a laugh. So I relearned it, and there, and we went over, and I'm, and I had just been doing um, Beauty and the Beast, um, a show with uh, a, a, an adult version of the show with my wife, where we ended up naked <laughs> doing it in front of the stage, simulated guys, simulated. But unbeknownst to me, some uh, LA producer had been in the audience and had looked at him and gone, "My buddy Ryan Murphy is casting for people like that at the moment for his current series." So I'm drunk in a beer hall just down in a rural germany after having done a great gig with all my like disabled buddies and old-time friends from the theater company pretty drunk i have to say and i get a call on my cell phone from an american dude going uh, we'd like you to do american horror story and i kind of heard of it but you know i don't watch a lot of tv or didn't in those days and it wasn't on in britain at the time so that like, yeah well, uh, 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 you know call me tomorrow i'm having a good time it was a sort of stunned silence on the phone the next day, when, and I went back and said, there's this guy from this thing, American Horror Story. They want me to be in the whole season. And they all like put their drinks down. They were like, 
what did you, what did you just say? <laughs> <laughs> and then I realized I'd, I'd messed up. So I called them back the next day and was like, yes, yes, please. Can I be in it? And, um, turned out to be the best job I'd ever done. And here's the rub. <clears throat> I'm, I was on a, uh, a C contract, which means you do a minimum of uh, a guarantee five lines or so, or up to five lines per app, uh, but no other guarantees. And, um, I got on set. They'd written the first four episodes, and they were assessing us all, as they do. They don't tell you they're doing that, but that's what they're doing. When we have first few scenes, they're like, what chops has this person got? And my first scene happened to be with Jessica, uh, Jessica Lang. No pressure there. And, um, well, you know, I felt the pressure, but, you know, I have done the job, and I have been with big stars before on right. sets and stuff. So I was like, I can do this. You convince yourself you can do it, then you pretend, and, and somehow the rest takes care of itself. So I'm on there and I do my little line and I look at her and I thought about it as an actor and thought about what I can give her because it's her scene and everything and go in, do it and come away. And unbeknownst to me, she turned around to the direct director and went, hey, that guy can act. You should give him more work. And um, lo and behold, <laughs> my part increased uh, to the point where I ended up in, in episode six being Jessica's lover and two-timing her with Meryl Streep's daughter. <laughs> I, I have questions about that coming up too, but um, I could never have imagined I would ever be in that situation. Yeah. And no pun intended, but when you get her seal of approval, I mean, that's fantastic. When, <laughs> when, when she says it, I mean, so I have a question. It's funny that you bring up casting. Cause that's kind of where I'm going. Uh, people, <laughs> but a fun fact here, you have a good, a solid, uh, maybe that's an understatement because you're a black belt, but a solid martial arts background that started in 1987. And so I had a director on the episode before this, Bao Wen, who directed the Bruce Lee documentary, Be Water, that's on ESPN. Oh, yeah, I haven't we, seen that yet. I'm looking forward to it. And we talked about whitewashing, right? Because Mickey Rooney and his horrible portrayal in Breakfast at Tiffany's so racist. Uh, and yeah. John, John Wayne played Genghis Khan. So I have to ask you, and I'm not going to make this all about, you know, but I was curious to get your point on this. Have spacking up improved? Have we, are, are we getting, are people getting the roles they deserve, Matt? Well, um, it's nowhere near where it needs to be. Um, Alice Wong, uh, her book, Disability and Visibility, just came out like four days ago. She's a disability academic in America. And, uh, and the, the brutal statistics speak for themselves. 97% of disabled roles are played by able-bodied actors. Wow. Now, you know, I spent a long time moaning about this and banging on about it. Um, I feel that's for younger people now. I've said my piece. I know people know what I think. Um, but if you're always the troublemaker, always banging the lid, the, the saucepan lid about it, um, you don't get the work. You just don't get the work. And I have to span the two. Right. I'm always going to say what I think. And I think fundamentally it's wrong to have people who are not disabled playing disabled roles. Of course, there's a sliding scale. Of course, there are special situations. Um, um, but on the whole, I don't agree with it. And I wish it would stop. You know, we have the Me Too movement. Um, Black Lives Matter, Oscar So White, a general awareness of, a, uh, of diversity and representation. We're picking up the scraps of some of that. It's not our time yet, but people are aware. You know, Joaquin Phoenix with his big speech about um, racial diversity in the film, that was great. But two years earlier, he played John Callahan in, in, a, in a movie playing a wheelchair user, quite unnecessarily. And the excuse that they used was, you know, well, we need a star. And that was the excuse they used for uh, Daniel Day-Lewis in 1982's My Left Foot. Mm. Um, and I hear you. I hear you. You need a big star to bankroll the movie. The producers don't want to pay unless there's a star on board. But how are any of us going to become that star if we're never given the opportunity? So what's good to see is that we're getting smaller roles, the C and the B roles, the supporting roles. I'm, you know, I'm at a career stage now where I get – work in fairly mainstream productions but my my lines are never to do with the main narrative which means that my stuff always gets cut because it's a b story and they always cut b and c stories because they need another lingering look from the lead actor about the main narrative and that's fine i'm not disputing that editorial decision but my glass ceilings now is to get the parts that are involved in the central narrative so you can't cut them because if you lose the lines you lose the meaning of the story but I think that's coming. I think that's around the corner. I'm going to remain 
positive and hopeful. Um, it, it, it's pretty dire, um, but it can only get better. And I'm fully expecting it to get better over the next 10 years, because I, I think the next time there's a big award given to uh, an able-bodied actor for playing a disabled role, which is inevitable in the next years, I think you're going to see a big fuss made about it. Mm. And that hopefully might be the beginning of the end of that. No, well said. And, you know, in doing the research and, you know, even the season four name of, of the American Horror Story, you know, I, I kept coming upon this one word. I said, I got to ask Matt about this. So uh-huh. is, is the word freak, is that a derogatory word? Because if somebody's a freak of nature, it's a compliment, right? It's usually a good thing, especially in sports. But is the word freak itself, <laughs> is it is it is it an offensive word? Is it depends how it's used in the context? Like, how, how is that uh-huh. word perceived? It's funny you just said, when you said freak of nature in a sporting context, I immediately heard an imaginary Joe Rogan. Going, Dude, that man is a freak of nature! <laughs> um, and you're right. It would mean an extra impressive physical specimen in, in that scenario. Right. Um, and to me, freak just means, you know, unbelievably unusual. Um, that's what we are. Right. Freak is not a bad thing. A freak accident is a rare occurrence. Um... I'm going to stick with that one. It has a lot of negative associations. Hippies from the fabulous furry Freak Brothers era obviously think of it as the sort of person that will, you know, do LSD and stuff like that. Um, I'm, I, when I entered Freak Shows in 1999, uh, Professor Paul Longmore, another disability academic, who I met and we got on great, by the way. You know, nobody's just black and white. We're all grey, really, in terms of our beliefs and our behaviours. Um, asserted that uh, the freak show was the pornography of the disabled. And I'd grown up with a lot of feminists who were Camilla Pag- Camille Paglia uh, generation feminists who'd been critiquing the Andrea Dworkin all pornography as women hatred school of feminism, if you like. And apologies if I'm sounding a little trite about these things. I don't mean to be. Um, and I thought, well, well I want to critique that. I want to critique that all, uh, you know, freak shows and the pornography of the disabled. And so... I started on a, a research journey that ended up me making the documentary for Channel 4 TV in Britain, Born Freak, which was a look at the history of freak shows, because I think they're the cultural heritage of the disabled performer. And uh, in doing that, I met Dixie Zegan at the Coney Island sideshow, and he, being a true carny, said, yes, you can film on Saturday, but then once you're out of here, I need Matt to f- perform for free in the grind show on Sunday. That's my payment. So he got his pound of flesh. But, of course, he also knew that I would find it deliciously, ambiguously intriguing because you're, you're there because you've been advertised for your freaky flippers and your arms, not your knowledge of Shakespeare or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. And, that's, and that's maybe could be branded a bad inverted commas thing. But then when they're in the theatre, they're going to listen to you talk. And I've got a brain on me. And I'm good at manipulation and persuasion. So my seven-minute act was all about the, F, the, um, the, um, the Food and Drug Administration and how it had been usurped by Donald Rumsfeld and how evil modern drug companies were and the pharmaceutical evils, blah, 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 blah. And those guys left indoctrinated, I can tell you. They got, but I showed them how I could do up my buttons and do some drumming with my arms. And at the end of the day, what's wrong with that? Mm. And, and what's wrong with explaining your medical condition? Damn it, that's what everyone wants to fucking know when they see me. It's just they can't ask me. And and also, if we're talking about, you know, I've come in to order 100 more photographs from a duplicator, and he goes, how did you get like that? That's as rude as going, where did you come from, buddy, if they mm. look different from you? It's like not relevant to this conversation. But on stage and in a sideshow, it is the relevance. And so I thought, wow, I've arrived at this place where I'm happy to be in a sideshow on a freak show stage being the freak, talking about my difference, explaining it medically. But, you know, most people left that theater uh, educated and entertained and enlightened. And a little bit, the load of, I think, a lighter load upon their shoulders about how they should respond to disability. Uh, It's contentious, my opinion, and a lot of people don't agree with it. Um, My wife would have a, a similar argument about burlesque and feminism, I do believe. You know, it's about agency, who's earning the money, who's got the power, blah, blah, blah. Um, And I think there are a lot of parallels. But that's where I stand with freaks and the word and what it means. But I don't want to – 
if there are people out there who are upset by the word and, and they find it distressing, I would never want to add to their distress, you know? No, that's really well said. And, you, you know, I have to say, I have, I've heard you talk about your theater work now, you, you, the burlesque work. How vital was that? I mean, we, we talked about the opportunities that have come from you, but how vital do you view that work to, to the actor you are now, Matt, right? You had oh. parents that were actors. You had all this other, you know, this other stuff, the musician. We've talked about a lot of this. How important was the theater work for you? Super important. Um, you know, after that time, I got politicized. I went to Grey Eye, the aforementioned disability theater company, and I ended up with my equity card. And, you know, I, I acted with other disabled people on stage and they sort of went to church, really, in a way. I'm non-religious, but I mean that in the Blues Brothers kind of context. You've got to go and find your spiritual home ground, get in touch with it, and then you can move forward. So that's what I was doing really there. Um, and But I auditioned for The Bill, which was our uh, NYPD Blue or, you know, one of our regular gotcha. cops. Yep. I was probably the only actor in Britain who'd never been on it. And um, I auditioned, and then they, they said it was great and everything. I did a good audition, and then I didn't hear from them. And I knew what was going on, but my agent didn't want to believe it. And then we phoned them up, and they caught them on the hop, and they went, I'm, 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 I'm sorry, he needed, the character needs to drive, so sorry. And my agent went, so you've seen his full driving license at the bottom of his resume? place in the, and the line went quiet and we caught them out on their lie mm. and i thought wow is that how it's going to be is that how it's going to be they're going to get caught out lying we're not going to get the truth fuck that and at the time burlesque i was doing a lot of cabaret on the side and burlesque was kind of taking over cabaret and i went and did a play in america and through a set of circumstances i ended up meeting my wife julie i loved the work she was doing it was not embarrassing striptease where you feel like you're a traitor to women i was brought up in a feminist environment guys so you've got to understand i couldn't really go to a regular strip club it just felt wrong to me i'm not judging it at all it just felt wrong for me but burlesque felt different it felt like non-traditionally shaped women were celebrating themselves without the requirement for the male gaze and that that was a move forward. And so I, I was all set to be part of it. Of course, what we missed <laughs> was that it ended up being a load of straight guys going, please welcome Miss Judah Dada. <laughs> and you're like, uh, how is this different from like 70s Vegas? <laughs> so, I, so I personally removed myself from it. But I was getting more back into acting anyway. But sorry, I've, I've taught myself in a circle. I, I am sorry. I, 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 I've hit a cul-de-sac. I, I can't remember what the question was. Oh, yeah. I asked you about the importance of theater work, and I think in a roundabout yeah. way, you did it. You did, you've kind of... Yeah, but I just wanted to add, thanks for putting me back on track. So when I started doing burlesque in New York, where they loved what I did, I really let go of all my last inhibitions and became the full theatrical burlesque that I wanted to do. And that really informed my practice as an actor and my physical body as an actor, because I'd been a little inhibited with my physicality before, um, so, so, and, and of course my wife also said, Julie, I, I was like, Oh, I can't do that. It's wrong because this, and I, I wouldn't do that because that, and she's like, Matt, do me a favor for one year, just say yes to everything you're offered. And then at the end of that year, let's review the situation. And she was right. I said, yes, I got work. I would never have done. I ended up being a striptease artist at the box, a very famous club in New York. Um, that I'm celebrating my beautiful freakish body in front of gold card holding daddy's girls. And that would never have happened in a million years if I'd have thought about it before I did it. Right. Um, and you know, I have Julie to thank and she's my rock. And, um, so yes, the theatrics of theater and burlesque have really informed my acting. Absolutely. Well said. And, you know, before I get to, I have a final few questions about American Horror Story. Before I get there, I noticed that you do a lot of Comic Cons, which might be a thing of the past for at least a few years. <laughs> I um, so, I mean, I, I, I almost feel like you, you and I, I've been to tons of Comic Cons. I cover a lot of them. I see some celebrities that are so miserable, they don't want to be there. I look at you during these interviews, and I feel like you are so at home at these Comic Cons. You love being there. You love the, you know, the, a lot of these fans are horror fans and, you know, they love yeah. movies and TV. I feel like I see a guy who's at home, who loves it, who loves being amongst people that appreciate his work. What's your take on Comic-Cons and how do you feel about them? Well, when I first did it, I had all the snobbery of Moira Rose from Shit's Creek about it. <laughs> um, and then I realized I was meeting real people. 
and they were responding to me. And I saw how my work had affected them with regards to their understanding of disability. Or there isn't a, there isn't a person that interacts with me that doesn't tell me about a disabled person they know or, you know, relative or a relationship with disability in some way that my work has kindled an awareness in them. And my God, that's powerful. Mm. But more powerful than anything is the little 10 year old with the limp who, who shuffles up to me and goes, I'm going to be an actor too mm. with those starry sparky little eyes. And you know, I'm like, that's why I'm here. Mm. That's why I'm here. I mean, I do love it. I kind of love all that C list. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I've got to tell you about the worst one I was ever at. <laughs> So my agent was like, please do this one, Matt. It's a batch of three. There were two good ones and bad, one bad one. Please do the one bad one. I'm not going to say where it was or who the people responsible were. But when I got there, I knew it was going to be bad because there, it was like an aerodrome with about five stalls in it. Way up the far end was, was our batch. And they put me next to the guy that has his head chopped off from the rotor blade of the helicopter in the 1979 zombie film Dawn of the Dead. <laughs> he had five different photos of that moment. <laughs> I, I looked to my left. Okay, that's him. I looked to my right. There's the guy who used to voice the name of a dog that I didn't grow up watching, so I apologize for not knowing it. But his catchphrase was, this is going to be a disaster. <laughs> Right. Yeah. So his right was the Native American guy from the village people. Oh, okay. So we were, we had great time. I am not devaluing them as they would not devalue me. But there we all were stuck in this comic con where the promoter had not done his work and no one had turned up. At one point they put a petting zoo next for the youngsters next to the, uh, the next to uh, the cowboy, uh, Randy and the, the native American character uh, the guy from uh, village people and then looked and then remembered what the village people were. And they were like, ah, oh, you could see that. <laughs> <laughs> and then I looked around at like the three people on the far side of the aerodrome thinking, I wonder if they're going to come and talk to me. And I was thinking, this is hell. And then I heard, I think this is going to be a disaster. <laughs> I was like, is this a fucking Christopher Guest film or what? And then I was like, it should be. And now I'm convinced that Christopher Guest and all his guys need to come out of retirement and do one more called The Convention. Do you know what I'm mean? Or The Comic-Con. Yeah. Because wouldn't that be great? All those people from Best in Show and MIT Yes, yes, yes. Doing that. <laughs> anyway, I, I've got so many amazing stories about Comic-Cons. Um, I think um, that because uh, at the point of when disaster hit, you know, they were being slightly oversubscribed. I think we got to the point where they flushed themselves out. And there were too many rivals and too many Comic-Cons and people weren't starting to make the money that they were used to making on them. And uh, so that was that. But no doubt this situation will have taken care of like 70 percent of people putting those on. Oh, that's great. Things. Yeah. Yeah. Those those shitty promoters. I've seen them. And, you know, it's too bad because when a Comic-Con works well, it's a lot of those great experiences you, you talked about, but then when they when they when it's done half ass, it's you know, <laughs> it's the the guy that voices the dog. It's 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 hell. Yeah, uh, and yeah. me, I I was there too. You know, like, and then, you know, and then it was the guy with the flipper arms next to me. Those guys will be telling the same story, but then to their right will be that guy from the fourth season of American Horror Story. Was it? You know, so I'm I'm not. I don't think I'm better than them in any way, and I love them all, and we laughed about it, and I ended up drunk playing pool. We're two members of the village people. So, you know, I've got that badge of honor. Yeah, that, that, I got to tell you, when your book comes out, I want to be the first one in line to buy it. <laughs> um, is, do, I, do I really say what happened? Because, you know, there's a lot of drugs and sex as well. Let it, I would let it all fly. I mean, that, you're an honest guy. Let it go. Um, so for those listening, you know, you're in season four of American Horror Story Freak Show. Yeah. You play yeah. Paul, the illustrated seal. Um, you were really adamant that you didn't want them tattooing your face. Why was that, Matt? Well, when I, that, 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 I struck that deal right at the beginning before I'd even seen what he was going to look like. Right. And I was like, I could be completely disguised here. And then they won't even see my face. No, thank you. Mm. So I said, I'd heard a bit about fake tattoos and stuff like that. And I just didn't want them on my face. Um, you know, and that's all there was to it. Um, people thought, including the producers and the script writers, which is why I ended up in my lines, I think. <laughs> um, um, that I think I'm, you know, it was like, 
I'm pretty, don't spoil oh, my face. But it wasn't, it honestly wasn't that. It was about the logistics of it. Of course, that came a bit me in the ass when lovely uh, Grace Gummer, uh, Meryl Streep's daughter, ended up playing my girlfriend and they took it all out on her. Yeah, I was going to say, she yeah. should have had the same agent you did to, to, to iron that out. I will just let you into this secret. When I say secret, I'm aware that it will become public if anyone chose to share the clip. Um, but when I saw, when we all got our makeup taken off, and it's a fairly laborious process that I did feel awfully sorry for her and wished I'd, you know, um, heroically agreed to do it so that she wouldn't have had to. But, you know, it is what it is, and it was what it was. And uh, sh- uh, we, we got on like a house on fire. What a lovely person Grace is. Yes. Um, but any questions about Horror Story, please ask, you know, um, and that final look, I feel though, I feel like it works. I, it worked better, and like I feel like it, it, you know, it brings out the way you look. I felt the tattoos kind of told the story too, but I felt if they covered your face with tattoos, it just would have been the wrong choice for a lot of reasons. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. Thanks for that. <laughs> yeah, and so you know, how much of 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 Matt, you know, how much of Matt is in Paul? Like, how much of it comes from experiences in your life? Versus a character you're creating. Mm. Well, when they when they started off, Paul was pretty soft, and I'm not. I'm kind of edgy, and I show my moods and things like that. And the scriptwriters picked up up on that pretty quick and turned Paul into a more um, sure of himself, sharper voiced person. Um, so that was definitely me bleeding into Paul a bit there. Um, I also was the guy on set with the most experience of real freak shows and sideshows. And so to my uh, pleasure, by about halfway through, they would come to me and ask about authenticity on certain things when we were bringing in new characters and what have you. Um, <clears throat> you know, we actually did audition a few people with extra dappily, a uh, lobster condition uh, for a storyline that was being plotted, but it didn't work out. Um, you know, that's a shame. You know, you can't have everything all the time. And they do slightly work on the fly with storylines. Um, but you know, by the time we got to when Paul was saying, come on freaks, let's get rid of this dandy guy and we can do it alone. I I think they'd imbued as much of me into the character as there was going to be. Um, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, And I I have mixed feelings about that, Matt, because, um, by the way, shout out to Finn Whitrock, who was phenomenal as Dan. Wasn't he good? Oh, just Uh, let me tell you about Finn. He had his 30th birthday halfway through the, the show. Um, I, I was obviously in touch with all the local burlesque scene, Bella Blue and all her crew at the Always Lounge doing the, and the monthly cabaret. So I was like, it's a Sunday. I asked the producers, do you mind if I perform? They're like, oh, you keep it on the low, don't, why not? Then a couple of cast members started coming along. By the end of it, we had most of the cast and crew coming to the show. Finn would often be the first one there, impeccably dressed, have a couple of whiskeys, enjoy himself be one of the later people to leave and always be first on set, impeccably dressed. His preparation for scenes are like no other person I know. He'd have, of course, studied his tension levels and the arc of his narrative, but he'd also reread the scene before and after each scene he was doing to fully embed himself in the situation. And I was always so impressed with that. Yeah, that's well said. And, and I kind of have mixed feelings because I, I loved your character. And I feel like the way American Horror Story reuses cast members for other seasons, I, it would have been nice to have seen Matt just play a, a, another guy. You know what I'm saying? I, I would have loved to see you in another season, in another role, in just something. You know what I'm saying? Like, it would have been nice to see you in that universe. Yeah, I share your disappointment with that. Yeah. Um, that's all I can really say. Um Ryan has his reasons for everything that he does. And, you know, socially speaking, we're probably quite distanced people from each other's. We probably not choose to invite each other to our, 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 our TV watching small family group. Having said that, my friend Ryan Haddad, who's a young disabled actor who's in The Politician, and him get on like a house on fire. You know, they're both gay, a bit campy, and culturally much more in tune with each other. Um, and I celebrate that. And Ryan um, got more work in Series 2. Ryan Haddad, my friend, got more work in Series 2 of The Politician than he did in Series 1. So if I helped, you know, pave the way for that to happen, then I can be happy with that. But on a personal level, of course, I'm a, a, a bit disappointed I didn't get to play somebody else. Just because it's fun. 
to play with the same actors, but you're all different people now, you know? Mm, well said. Yeah. And my very last question is, you know, Lady Gaga is huge in the American Horror Story universe. Also, you're, I think he's one of your good friends. Brian Newman is a trumpet player in her band. Yes, Brian, yeah. <laughs> yes. So I have to say, you know, are you still doing work as a musician? Or, I mean, with all this going on around, you know, we were talking off air about what 2020 has brought us. Um, you know, are you still doing work musically? Is, is that still going on in your life? It is, but it's sort of confined to the shows that I do. Um, Julie, uh, mostly a lifetime adult performer, and myself, who's often worked in adult-orientated things, um, take great delight in I write and she directs a family holiday show for Christmas time in the British pantomime tradition, which does not mean what pantomime means in, in American. We call it the panto. It's a lot of cross-dressing, lots of shouting out. It's very vaudevillian. The actors come out of character and talk to the audience. And I write that and Julie directs it. And then I'm the drummer in the band. So I get my chops drumming still. And I write the original songs for the show. Although mostly we pastiche pop songs. Um, but I write two or three original tunes. So that's where I get my yaya's out in terms of uh, being a musician. I am available, though, as a drummer. And, you know, if Coldplay want to ask me back to do anything, I drum with them for the Paralympic opening ceremony in 2012. You know, if Tom hurts his finger... And they've got a tour coming up. I am available, Chris, you know, just saying, um, as I would be for most people. I thought but, I read that you drum, you were a drummer with Coldplay. For, I thought I read, I was like, I'm not sure if I'm reading this correctly, not because I didn't believe it, but because it was just the way I read it was vaguely stated, but that's an impressive, yeah. that's an impressive thing. Well, yeah. And that came out of the bloody blue. Um, all, all my breaks in life have come for really weird coincidences. So, I was in the opening ceremony, so that was for the closing ceremony. I was in the opening ceremony uh, with Grey Eye Theatre Company again, the, the through line with them. <laughs> and apparently I got back because my wife had watched it on telly, Julia. She was like, oh, my God, there was a clip of you drumming. And then it threw to Ian McKellen with a sign saying freedom. Um, <laughs> next day I get a call. Uh, Hello, um, Matt, this is uh, uh, Chris uh, Martin from the band Coldplay. Uh, we've got uh, we're doing a show on Sunday, and if you're free on Tuesday and Thursday and Sunday, we'd love you to come and maybe be a part of it. Just give us a call back. Um, I was like, "What the hell?" So I called back, and he'd seen me on TV and thought, "Why the hell have we got that guy in our show? It's the Paralympics, for God's sake! Like, surely he can drum for one." So I ended up negotiating which song to play on with Coldplay, and then. Uh, going to one of their gigs, which did involve a private jet and going to Stu uh, Hanover in Germany and flying back again and sitting next to Chris Martin in their weird private jet, which is a trip in itself, um, and then rehearsing and then doing the show. It was a whirlwind, mate. I tell you, it's one of the weirdest experiences and most wonderful experiences of my life. And I'll leave you with this. For yes, Jay-Z was part of it. Yes. Um, help me out. But it's good to get my money. Who was that? That wasn't... That uh -huh. was, uh, Oh, oh god yes her you'll you'll think of it in a minute yeah oh. so she's in the dressing room next to me jc and his guys are up the corridor we're about to go on stage in front of seventy five thousand people an old flipper boy here thinking rihanna don't. rihanna yeah okay an old flipper boy here's thinking don't drop the sticks don't <laughs> drop the sticks it's in front five million people watching no pressure <laughs> that is i look I go out, I'm like pacing the, the, the corridor thinking, oh my God. And, I, and Chris Martin comes around the corner. He goes, Matt, let's have a word. And he takes me out onto the, um, the fag break, the fire escape. Neither of us is smoking. And he goes, he just looks at me and he goes, Matt, how many gigs have you done in your life? More than me, probably. I'm like, maybe 500 or something. He's like, exactly. And this is just a gig. Okay. It's just a gig. And I thought, what a nice man. Right. He read my face got what was happening and did what the band leader needs to do. And I thought, my God, what a lovely bloke. Calmly you can, reassuring. You can, can criticise Coldplay for their circle of fifths all you like. What you see is what you get. They're really nice people. Nah, beautifully said. I got to tell you, you are a wonderful human being, a good soul. And I, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show today. I mean, you, you were patient with me. You were kind in our email exchange. You're well, just a you're just a solid human being, Matt. And I can't, I well, can't thank you. And I, I feel the same from you very much. So, and I like, I'm just going to end with this cause it's timely. I like many people have pained over how to help with black lives matter. 
And the only way we can do it is make sure that we reflect our beliefs and our recent reminders of education in the casting of our next show. And our money will be where our mouth is. And that's all I can say. It's a god-awful small affair To the girl with the mousy hair But her mommy is yelling no And her daddy has told her to go But her friend is nowhere to be seen Now she walks through her sunken dream To the seat with the clearest view And she's hooked to the silver screen But the film is a saddening bore For she's lived it ten times or more She could spit in the eyes of fools As they ask her to focus on I wrote it ten times 